Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. So welcome to our second Instagram Live, hopefully successful in terms of looking up to both our sites. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Um, so Geordie's going to run the questions that people have sent to us through our various different channels. Um, hi everyone. And, um, feel free to send us questions during the session and we can also answer them. If not today, if we don't get to them, we can do this all again next week and answer them then. Great. All right. Question. Is it okay? to try naturally to conceive the first month after freezing your eggs? Yeah, it is. Although it kind of kind of bears questioning why you are freezing your eggs. <laughs> because I always say <laughs> egg, freezing, egg freezing is a fantastic technology. It's amazing technology. And anyone who knows me knows that right from the inception of when this technology became non-experimental back in 2012, um, I've been very supportive of egg freezing for women who aren't at a stage in their life where they can immediately have a baby. Like, for example, if um, you are unpartnered or if uh, you are in a relationship that's not ready or if you might have some kind of medical reason why you can't conceive straight away and uh, particularly patients about to have cancer treatment often do choose to freeze their eggs. But if you're thinking about getting pregnant in the subsequent month, I would say that egg freezing might not have been necessarily the most relevant treatment for you. But having said that, there's no reason why you shouldn't. The reason I say that is that embryos do a lot better than eggs uh, just because it's, I say, comparing apples to oranges. You know, an embryo has, you know, about by the time it gets to the blastocyst stage, over 150 cells and it's a much more progressed uh, level of life than just an egg and certainly if you were with a partner or were um, thinking about having donor sperm to conceive in the very next month the question rises to why you might have been freezing eggs as opposed to maybe embryos or potentially nothing at all if you were ready to have a baby <laughs> but yes there's Definitely, nothing, nothing but your first but, so your first cycle after freezing your eggs is normal it's normal yeah, you can conceive, Perfect. and if you don't want to conceive, you should use contraception. Perfect. Is it possible to defrost half your eggs, fertilise them, create embryos, and refreeze? So you yes, can have half definitely. your embryos, half your eggs are still in the freezer untouched, and then half you want to you want to create embryos. Yeah, you can. And it's so absolutely it's fine to refreeze. Embryos, yes, it is. So certainly you can do that. There's no evidence to show any detrimental effects. Uh, you would mostly not be, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a common scenario because when we think about 
why we might be taking eggs out of the freezer. It's obviously when you want to have a baby. And in terms of that, you might choose to do that with all your eggs if you're in a secure relationship with a secure partner. Maybe if you're using donor sperm to conceive as a single parent, you might want to keep some options open for the future should you repartner. And that might be a scenario where this kind of technique, keeping some eggs for later, might be useful. It does consolidate the lab costs if we if we make embryos all at once and it doesn't cause embryos harm to be frozen. Uh, we lose a proportion of embryos that we freeze when we warm them, of course, and that's the case with embryos at any stage of IVF. But we have pregnancy rates from frozen embryos that are, you know, almost every bit as good as fresh embryos and you can sometimes argue that the environment for a frozen embryo might even be better than from a fresh embryo in a stimulated IVF cycle where there's been lots of hormonal changes compared to a natural cycle it's very different so uh, certainly you know embryos can be frozen and um, and then warmed and subsequently they can make babies and the chance for a, a good quality embryo making a baby is very very good. So it's not like it in your home kitchen where if you take something out of the freezer, it can't go back in. That's it. But having said that, you know, in Australia, uh, we have to think about the costs of treatments. And when we look at item numbers and Medicare benefits, it's really allocated per treatment. So if you were someone who had, say, 20 eggs frozen and you wanted to thaw 10 of them to do something in a month, that would be a lab treatment. And if you left your other eggs in the freezer and you wanted to do something with them in another month, that would be another lab treatment. Whereas if you took them all out in the one month, that would be considered one treatment and it would really consolidate the cost from a laboratory perspective. So sometimes strategically, if you're sure that you're with the person you want to fertilise your eggs with, that you do that all at once rather than in two goes. But pretty much anything goes. And at the end of the day, you know, if you wanted to do a strategy of egg splitting, then certainly we can do that. Great. What is a tubal flush? Okay. So a tubal flush is when we, it's, it's pretty much what it sounds like. So I guess let's start with what's a tube. So a fallopian tube is what we're talking about here, which are the two little tubes that we have on either side of our uterus. And they're the conduit for the egg and later the embryo to reach the cavity of the uterus where a baby implants and grows and where a pregnancy happens. So fertilisation happens in the end of the fallopian tube. We've actually done an episode on fallopian tubes. I'm not sure if it's been released yet on our podcast. So yeah, it has. Um, if you yeah. want information, you can always go on to Knocked Up and have, have a listen all about fallopian tubes. But um, the end of the tube picks up the egg and actually fertilisation happens in the end of the fallopian tube and the embryo travels down the fallopian tube over a series of five to six days and it lands up in the cavity of the uterus as a blastocyst. So, you know, sometimes I say to my patients, you know, what we're trying to achieve in an IVF lab scenario is to be the world's best fallopian tube because that's what what's happening in nature is happening in the lab, is happening in nature in the fallopian tube. So... In terms of flushing, what we're recognising is sometimes the fallopian tube is not clear and sometimes 
there can be mucus buildup, there can be little polyps, there can be adhesions, um, which can be caused by uh, scarring after inflammation, infection, endometriosis. And for whatever reason, ectopic pregnancy, so a pregnancy that happened in the tube before that result. So for whatever reason, the fallopian tube might not be functioning as well as it possibly could. And flushing the tubes is when we put fluid through the tubes and you can flush with a variety of media. Um, you can see the second part of the question is about lapidol, which is poppy seed oil. That's one media we can use. And um, we can also flush with saline. We can flush with a lot of the contrasts that are used for ultrasound, uh, little bubbles made of sugar molecules. And that's because that's easy to see on ultrasound. Uh, but we can flush with a variety of substances. It doesn't matter what you flush with. It matters how good a flush you do. And in terms of even flushing with salty water at laparoscopy, uh, when someone's asleep and we're doing a tube test during a surgery, we can use really high volumes and we can use warm saline and we can you know, flush the tubes really, really well. So I don't think it's about the substance that you use. Lapiodol entered the vernacular or the language of fertility really when studies were done using a technique called HSG. And HSG stands for hysterosalpingogram. We don't do it that often these days uh, because you can now test the function of the tube with ultrasound really well. Back in the day, HSG used to be the go-to test to check the function of the fallopian tube, and it's actually an X-ray where you give an iodine contrast like lapiodol or some other radioactive contrast that we can see on an x-ray and we flush the tubes and then take an x-ray photo still shot to see if the tubes are patent and what the shape of the cavity of the uterus looks like so the reason we don't do that as often anymore is that it although it's in some ways cheaper and you can do it across more settings so sometimes in the country or places where you can't access a high-quality women's ultrasound, they might do that. It's less operator-dependent than a high-quality women's ultrasound. But ultrasound is, I think, the far better way of doing an imaging technique to check the tubes because it's dynamic and there's no radiation, so we're not putting any X-rays into the pelvis, um, which can be, you know, although an X-ray is safe, high levels of X-rays are associated with cancer, so we don't want to be radiating a woman's pelvis unnecessarily. Uh, ultrasound is a really dynamic test. So, you know, your tubes are sometimes called blocked when they're not on an HSG because of spasm. And we can overcome that in a more dynamic sense with ultrasound. And also ultrasound gives us a lot of extra information in general. So we can look at the antral follicle count of the ovary. We can get a lot of information that might point to subtle signs of endometriosis where we might have not necessarily ultrasound evidence but it might be tender to pro-pressure in certain areas that are characteristic of endo so we can find out a lot of different information about a patient of course if there's stage three stage four endometriosis on that test you also get a lot of information in terms of seeing any endometriomas or any nodules or any abnormal anatomy so there's a lot of a lot of things that can be gained from what we call a high C or a tubal flush by ultrasound that are not present by HSG. So in the days of HSG, there were some studies done mainly in Europe and um, looking at when you did a X-ray test, 
did you get more pregnancies after that test, just random pregnancies from the element of tubal flushing with lapiodol versus other contrast media and after that versus saline? And it's a difficult thing to extrapolate to the non-HSG settings, but people kind of thought, oh, maybe if we flush the tubes therapeutically with lapiodol, would that be of benefit? Unfortunately, the evidence... Uh, of studies looking into that very question has not been promising. Uh, people have thought that and tried to do trials, but you know, while in small studies there is a little bit of benefit thought to be there, it really hasn't played out in larger studies. And lapidol costs about $500 a vial compared with saline, which costs very little. Uh, and in terms of problems with lapidol, you can have bad thyroid reactions where your thyroid goes low and you have a very underactive thyroid for quite a long time after you have lapidol in your system. You can also have a problem with oil embolus. So, you know, people who do lapidol imaging at surgery, you know, I, I think that's not the world's best idea and they might be asking for trouble because if you do have an exposed blood vessel and you do get an oil embolus, that can be really dangerous for a patient and can, in fact, cause really, really significant problems and a patient can die. So I personally am not the world's biggest fan of lapidol. I don't think it's proved a great benefit. I had a very open mind in early days when the studies were more promising, but I just don't think that it has really proven to be a lot better than saline. And my personal practice is I often use the more sugar moiety type contrast it means you don't have to sit out a cycle either you certainly wouldn't recommend for someone to try with a lipidal flush and then try to get pregnant with that kind of iodine enriched media around the egg so i think it's much safer to do a sugar-based contrast at imaging like a high co c uh, in that situation you can try to conceive that very month and it's not a problem and anecdotally, I have a lot of patients in my practice who have conceived in that very month or the month that follows. And in terms of uh, if we want to look further and we want to have a look inside the tummy with laparoscopy, my personal feeling is that a high-volume saline flush where I put a lot of saline through the tubes, about 500 mils, is amazing and very effective and much more natural to the pelvis. And tubal flush, you mentioned it happening during laparoscopic surgery, but it often will just happen while you're lucid. Yeah, yeah. So imaging, you wouldn't be asleep. So either HDG or Hycosy, those two techniques that we talked about with ultrasound or with x-ray, you're not asleep, you're wide awake. It is very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'm telling you that from someone who's had this done herself. So it is a very uncomfortable <laughs> If you go for a high C, my advice is take whatever you would take for strong period pain before presenting for the test about 40 minutes before and just be prepared that you can feel really, it's, it's like a very visceral discomfort. The cervix is a very sensitive area and in terms of holding the cervix still and passing a little tube through the cervix, the tube's a little bit thicker than what we use at uh, embryo transfer, but you do need resistance against contrast. So often the doctor who does that test, whether it be an HSG or a high C, would use what's called a tenaculum, which is a little pinchy instrument that holds the cervix still, and putting the dye through um, uh, while we're watching with ultrasound can take quite a few moments, and it can make you feel very yucky. It can feel like 
is a bit nauseous and it can feel a bit like a labour contraction, I think is probably the best way I can describe it. You've got to be prepared. Sounds gross. I, I often tell patients okay. about it. Well, if, if, I, if I don't tell my patients about it, then, you know, they'll say, well, why did you send me for that terrible test? Um, and not yes. tell me it was going to be so awful. And then I've had other patients say, oh, it wasn't as bad as you made it out to be. So, you know, it's kind of like you want to give fair warning, but it, it is for Absolutely. a reason. It's to get a diagnostic idea of whether the tubes are okay, which is really important in terms of choosing which techniques we're going to help a couple to get pregnant using. So many of the lesser techniques that don't involve IVF do require egg and sperm to meet on that highway of the fallopian tube. And you certainly wouldn't want to be doing IUI um, or artificial insemination if the fallopian tubes weren't in good working function, good working order. Yep. I've got a question that's just been asked now. Um, can you explain what people with unexplained fertility can do to get pregnant, especially with everything happening right now? So I think this sure. is a question we're so going to get asked a lot at the moment. Yeah, sure. So look, the first thing you need to do is say a specialist if you haven't, because, you know, unexplained infertility is a diagnosis that presumes everything that could go wrong has been looked for everything well it's not everything that could go wrong it's everything that there's a test that can pick up and remedy has been done and really to make that assumption you have to have really explored things in a great deal of depth so you have to have had genetic studies karyotypes have to have had uh, really kind of um, endocrine studies of the male and the female looking at the sperm looking at the pelvis, having had a laparoscopy. If you haven't done all of those things, then it's not unexplained, it's uninvestigated. In terms of uh, unexplained infertility, many patients with so-called unexplained infertility actually have endometriosis, which is really common, and only 50% of the time can be seen on ultrasound. So that's something that always has to be ruled out. In terms of when infertility is unexplained, it doesn't mean that there's not an explanation. I always say that in that there's, it doesn't mean there isn't a problem. It, there is a problem. It just means that the problem might not be so easy to solve without an IVF lab and, you know, putting egg and sperm together in the lab might be what's needed to see what the answer to the problem is and potentially to overcome it. In terms of what can we do? Well, look, Things that we can do to optimise natural fertility are to look into our natural health and our holistic health. So on our team at Women's Health Melbourne, for example, we're very lucky um, to have Wendy Fideli. Hi, Wendy, who's a um, clinical nutritionist. She's fantastic at helping us identify things we can do in our diet to optimise our general health and the health of our partner, equally important for making good sperm. In terms of... Uh, our other team members, we've got the lovely Georgia Borowski, who's a beautiful naturopath, and I would encourage you know, patients to really think about the things that other health practitioners can bring to the mix in terms of looking at our diet, looking at our lifestyle, looking at how natural remedies can assist, and looking at how we can be the healthiest versions of ourselves that we can be. Of course, with sex, is getting the timing right, and that's something that we can focus on and really get in tune with our body know uh, how we ovulate uh, and if we can deal with stress now stress of infertility is heightened at this time especially when fewer options are open if we have listened to the most recent episode of our podcast 
with Mandy Azalea, you know, she talks about how acupuncture can help. I think thinking outside the square is really important. And I think working on all of those things together is something that's great. If you've got a low egg count and you're awaiting IVF, you know, working on measures to try and optimise the outcome of an IVF cycle, like using a gentle androgen drive, can sometimes help over the months waiting for more advanced treatment. And certainly if you do need a lab-assisted treatment and you're not yet ready and you haven't navigated the hurdles required to get to that point, you know, that's something that we can do now during downtime in terms of, you know, kind of being a counsellor, making sure all your checks that are necessary are done in terms of your medical checks, your consent appointments, um, everything that you need to do in terms of logistics and paperwork, nurse education appointments, and just making sure that you're ready, all of these things can happen now. Okay, so I think like you said, about unexplained could mean uninvestigated. Obviously, we don't know the case of the, of the question being asked, but now is an excellent time to start investigations. An excellent time. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people go and see their GP and they've done some pretty basic investigations. And so I think there's not anything obvious on that level, but, you know, when you see a fertility specialist, we delve into far deeper realms and deeper levels. And that's where we're looking to find where the problem might be. And, you know, the other thing is male factor is something that is underappreciated. When you look at the semen analysis, the parameters that are there as the reference range are the fifth percentile of the population. If you were doing year 12 and you got a result in the fifth percentile English test, you might not be so impressed with that result. So, you know, some guys, you look at the sperm and it's called normal, normal range, but it's right down the bottom of the normal range, you know, making impacts with lifestyle change to try and identify why that is and whether it can be lifted back towards a more middle of the range zone might help. So, you know, sometimes male factor infertility through misinterpretation of the semen analysis parameters is sometimes thought to be normal when in fact it isn't. Can you have a frozen egg transfer whilst breastfeeding? Okay, so look, there was an article today in the Herald Sun which made this same kind of different, uh, same mistake in nomenclature. So I'm just going to point it out that we don't transfer eggs, we transfer embryos. So the difference between an egg and an embryo is that an egg belongs to a woman alone and it's a single cell and without being fertilised with sperm, it can't make a baby. Whereas an embryo is an egg that has already been fertilised with sperm. And what we do is we tend to grow them out with modern IVF to a blastocyst stage, which is the day five or day six embryo. And that's when the embryo is frozen when it has over 150 cells, between 150 and 250 cells in general. So we can do an embryo transfer while you're breastfeeding. Many patients do ovulate and have regular periods while breastfeeding. And really, when you want to transfer an embryo is when the uterus is receptive to receive an embryo. In terms of when you are exclusively breastfeeding a very young baby and you might not be having a regular cycle or regular periods, I'd advise against transferring an embryo 
but in terms of it can be done, you can work out the way to do it, but I would recommend against that. But once your baby's on solids and, you know, you're not exclusively breastfeeding uh, and your periods generally do return, there's no reason that you have to stop feeding to have another pregnancy. Is it normal for your menstrual cycle to be irregular whilst breastfeeding? Yeah, look, again, it can be. So it really depends on the state of your body and the state of the communication between your hypothalamus, your pituitary gland and your ovary during breastfeeding. And it's influenced by a hormone called prolactin, which is very high in a pulsatile sense while we're feeding. Now, what happens is when we're exclusively feeding, our prolactin feeding very often, our prolactin levels are really, really high a lot of the time and it does suppress your ovulation. Later on, once you start to not feed as much and you have better nutrition yourself, maybe also your sleep patterns regulate a bit more as your baby starts to behave him or herself a bit more. Mine took about nine years to do that. Anyway, um, your periods do come back and, you know, but they don't always come back like clockwork and it can take a bit of time for your cycle to really regulate again. If you are someone who had an irregular cycle to begin with, then all bets are off because it might be irregular again. Uh, and depends on the reason, like, for example, polycystic ovarian syndrome might be an underlying cause. Uh, that's quite common. There are other causes of irregular cycles that can happen to you while you're breastfeeding. So I'd say that if you have any underlying concerns about yourself, uh, it's time to check in with your doctor. And we can do a few hormone tests and just make sure there's nothing else going on before we blame it on the breastfeeding if it's been more than six months. We had a few breastfeeding questions this week. After breastfeeding, are there any signs that indicate ovulation has restarted? Yeah. So the first time you ovulate, there won't be any period beforehand. So what happens with an ovulation is that it's really, I mean, our body is really trying to get us pregnant when we ovulate. So the beginning of a cycle is when an egg starts to ripen and the follicle around it starts to make estrogen. The estrogen makes your lining grow and you might be able to pick up some signs of that, like some fertile mucus, increased feelings of well-being, increased feelings of sexual interest. You might notice some breast swelling, um, changes in uh, colour around the nipples, those kind of things. They can be quite subtle signs, but if you're really tuned into your body, you might notice that and you might notice your tummy swelling a little bit as you get towards your mid-cycle. So those kind of signs you might pick up if you're super tuned in. But in terms of, you know, the first period after the first ovulation, if you don't conceive with that ovulation, then, you know, eventually the corpus luteum, which is the hormone-making factory from the follicle that was making progesterone after you ovulate, starts to what we call involute or shrink down. And then the progesterone levels fall and you have a period. So the first period is kind of generally two weeks after the first ovulation. So the first, if the first sign that you've ovulated is a period, well, then you probably ovulated two weeks before you got that sign. I've also had patients before in my practice who have conceived with their first ovulation, so they've not had a period after a baby and they've come in pregnant, so not, not realising. So that can happen too. So it, yes, it can. Um, when you're breastfeeding, the signs that you're ovulating are exactly the same to when you're not breastfeeding. So 
So all of those things we talked about, a bit of fertile mucus. If you're into tracking your temperature, you do get a slight temperature rise after you ovulate, but it happens after the horse is bolted. So while it's quite good for the Billings method of contraception um, to abstain from sex until your temperature has risen, it's not as good for predicting ovulation when you're trying to have a baby. And then, what, like you just said, um, you will have already ovulated before you get your period. So what contraceptives would you recommend using whilst breastfeeding? So if you're not breastfeeding, the recommendation is six weeks after you have a baby, you should be on contraception. So, you know, it, you can ovulate pretty soon after you've had a baby. Uh, breastfeeding exclusively generally does take that out a little bit, but... You know, there's lots of good ways that you can use contraception reliably. You can use an IUD. So I personally have, you know, used a Marina IUD, which is a progesterone IUD, completely safe for breastfeeding, very good for spacing babies. You can use a copper IUD, which is an IUD without any hormone on it. And you can use any kind of progesterone-only contraceptives. You can use an Implanon or a mini pill. Uh, as a hormonal contraceptive. And in fact, if your breastfeeding is really well established, you can even use the pill or the, or the neuvering because it will only suppress breastfeeding in a woman in whom that is not already established. So, you know, there's lots and lots of options. And of course, there's barrier contraception, including condoms. And if you've completed your family uh, and you're very sure of that, then don't forget vasectomy, which is a very good way of um, ensuring contraception from a male perspective. That time the men did something. We've just had another question come through. Um, are you still doing laparoscopies for fertility investigations in the COVID environment? Not right now. No, all elective surgery has been paused. We have heard that the government's going to think about that. We don't really know when. We know they're going to talk about it on Tuesday, but we, we don't know when anything's going to be lifted and there hasn't been talk of lifting any um, investigation bans for elective surgery. We talked last time, I think, a little bit about what is elective and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a difficult word to hear because no one mm. elects to be infertile and no one elects to have endometriosis. But elective surgery just means... In medical speak, not an emergency. So there's emergency surgery and elective surgery. So elective surgery means we don't have to do it in the middle of the night with sirens blazing, but it is still an important problem. The reason that elective surgery has been delayed has been twofold and things are changing. But the first reason has been that they don't want us to congregate in a hospital setting with lots and lots of you know, exposures to each other. The second problem has been that we do use a lot of uh, special equipment for elective surgery, including hospital gowns, gloves, masks, uh, all of these together are known as personal protective equipment or PPE. And we know that if we were to have gone down a pathway like Italy or the USA, they really ran short of those things treading COVID at the front line. So what Australia didn't want us to do is use up all those supplies doing operations that could wait. Uh, and as our COVID circumstance um, changes and as our recommendations change, so will, and as our supplies change, as our government tries to get more personal protective equipment and potentially manufacture some here, 
Um, one of the problems was that it was a kind of industry that was really outsourced from overseas for 99% of what we need. And when we're not bringing things in and out of the country, that's a massive problem. And so I think one of the things that's happening now is we're trying to make some more PPE here in Australia. But um, as, that, as that situation changes and as the resourcing issues change, um, we'll get some clearance, I think, from our government to resume normal activities in medicine, including investigating problems like infertility. What can women do to improve their chances of conceiving naturally and or stop us from feeling defeated whilst fertility treatments are on hold? Okay. So in terms of what can we do to boost our chances, so we talked about already things that we can do to get ready for other things. Uh, we can really only do at the moment right now super ovulation in vivo which, or ovulation induction. Uh, in terms of the risks and benefits, that's something you need to talk to your doctor on a one-to-one -one basis about. Some people, twin pregnancy is a massive risk. Um, like, for example, if you've got an abnormal-shaped uterus, if you've had cervical surgery, if you've had a previous premature baby, we really don't want you to be having twins. And one of the reasons that IVF in Australia has gone to single embryo transfer most of the time is that we know that the more twins we make, the more babies that will be admitted to intensive care, the more babies that will die from complications of prematurity and the more mums will have obstetric complications of multiple pregnancies. So we, we do take it pretty seriously and in terms of offering that, it wouldn't be suitable for everyone. Having said that, for my patients who are over 40 who've had to delay IVF, I think it's a much safer demographic to assist with gentle in vivo super ovulation as we can, but it does require ultrasound monitoring and it is a bit of a gamble when we ask for more eggs in a natural cycle, there is an increased risk of multiple pregnancy. How many healthy follicles are needed for conception? So every baby comes from one egg. <laughs> so in a natural yes. cycle, you'll generally have one, one follicle, one egg, and if you conceive, one baby. So all of us in the world who are naturally conceived would have come from one follicle, one egg. And, um, you know, I've got some IVF patients in my practice who've had one follicle, one egg, one baby. Um, but, you know, that I always say when a patient has a low number of follicles, we talk about whether we proceed or whether we decide to cancel a cycle. But, you know, every baby does come from one egg and it's valid to have a go if you want to. In terms of... Uh, the AMH test, you know, is something that I often explain to patients who've had a lower AMH and that's been identified on screening and they don't necessarily have infertility but they've come in to discuss it, that, you know, in a natural cycle, whether your AMH is 25 or whether it's 5, you're going to release one egg most of the time. And if a woman is demographically identical, aside from those two different numbers, you know, her chance of getting pregnant is probably just the same as long as her partner is fertile and she's relatively healthy as well. Um, we will all in a natural cycle mostly release one egg. The chance of having natural twin pregnancy is one in 80 pregnancies will be a twin pregnancy. So, And some of those twin pregnancies are two egg pregnancies where instead of releasing one egg, we've happened to release two in the same month. But... 
um, most of the time we release one egg at a time. And that's it for today. Okay, wonderful. Thanks for joining us. So we'll, so we'll upload this onto podcasts as well. So if anyone missed anything and like to get like to catch up, they'll be able to listen to it via Knocked Up, our podcast. And we'll be back next Friday. Yeah, so keep sending our questions and um, we're hoping to make this a bit of a regular gig. So look forward to speaking to you all next week. Bye for now. Thank you so much. Bye.